You could probably open your Bibles to Exodus around 14. We'll kind of be all over. If you don't want to use your Bibles, the verses should be provided. Most all the verses we're in should be provided there for you in your packet. Um, but just as a reminder of where we have been over the, over the past several weeks, we have looked pretty in-depth at the Exodus story, and that's kind of where we're going to be spending even the next few weeks as the children of Israel begin their wandering expedition throughout the, the wilderness, uh, getting ready to go into the Promised Land, which takes far longer than they thought it would probably initially. Um, but we've been in this for, for some time now, and we, we've talked about some historical aspects of the Exodus and when we think this might have occurred. I do want to clarify a couple of things. Um, one of the things, I, I take what is typically called an early date of the Exodus. That tends to be when you find a conservative scholarship, that tends to be where conservative scholarship lands is on an early date of the Exodus. And the reason for that is because in 966, Solomon builds the temple, and the Bible says it was 480 years from the Exodus. And so when you date that back, what you get to is a year of 1446, and that's the, considered the early date of the Exodus. And so then you just start doing the math on when people lived, and you start working your way back. Some people have a what's called a late date of the Exodus, which is they put it sometime in the in, in near uh, 1200s BC, and that would be considered a late date of the Exodus. And they do that for a number of reasons. Most of them are archaeological, but there are a couple of reasons that they point to in the text. Like there's some cities that are called out that that we'll even see. I think in one of our one of the verses we'll read today, uh, where Ramses is called out, the city of Ramses. And the city of Ramses doesn't come around until Ramses is on the throne. Go figure, right? So, um, so because of that, they take that name and they take the, the, the date there and they say that, that has to be the date of the Exodus. Now, I want to clarify that somebody that, that takes a late date of the Exodus is not necessarily a heretic or awful person or anything like that or not a Christian or not believing the Bible. It's sort of just a little bit more like, uh, like Lucy. Got some explaining to do, okay, when it comes to the text. That's a bit like how it is. So you, you kind of want to hear how do you reconcile a couple of these things like the 480 years from the building of the temple and things like that. So um, what we've been going down is sort of a timeline of the of the. Uh, the early date of the Exodus, which we say is somewhere around 1446, is going to be in that, in that time period, which would mean that probably Amenhotep II is on the throne during the time when Moses is leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. And there are a couple of things in Amenhotep's life that seem to line up pretty well with what we know of the story. It seems like um, he, he, he has a couple of children, and it seems like not the oldest child ends up taking the throne after him, which would kind of point to the 10th plague, where it kills his, his firstborn child. Um, now, in the plagues of the Exodus, one thing that becomes very clear theologically as we're looking at what the plagues are, do not think of the plagues as God needing 10 opportunities to finally convince the Pharaoh to let his people go. It's very clear that God has a hand in wanting to demonstrate a few things to Pharaoh, both to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, and to the children of Israel as well. He's telling Pharaoh and the Egyptians, I'm greater than your gods. 
And so it appears all of these 10 plagues seem to have some sort of uh, polemic, as it were, or they are against, working against the gods of the Egyptians. But then the other part of this, we see this in Exodus 10, 1 and 2, where God tells Moses, not only am I doing this for Pharaoh, I'm doing this for you too. I want you to see and you to understand that I am above all gods. Remember, we talked, we dealt with a little bit how the children of Israel have been in, in Egypt for some 400 years. Their ancestors have been there for some 400 years. And so after about 400 years, well, the gods of Egypt have started to set in on their heart, as we will see coming out in, at Sinai. But so God doing these miraculous signs in the presence of the children of Israel and uniquely shielding them in the land of Goshen from all of the catastrophe that was happening to the Egyptians is a further testimony to the God that they're serving. And so he's beating the gods of the Egyptians out of the hearts of his people as he prepares to take them into the wilderness. That much becomes very clear even from the scripture, but also from the historical uh, subtext that's going on there. So each plague we saw is, sort of, is attacking certain gods of the Egyptians, or perhaps even a group of gods of the Egyptians. And so then it's after the 10th plague, where the death of the firstborn uh, hits. The, pa- the Passover, the angel of death passes over the children of Israel's house because the blood of the lamb is on the doorpost. And the angel of death passes over their house and strikes dead the firstborn child of the houses of Egypt. That the people in Egypt have had enough. And they are sick of these Hebrew people and their God. And they realize Pharaoh is no match for this God. And so they send them out. But they don't just send them out. They drive them out. But they don't just drive them out. They give them gold and silver. They give them lots of possessions as they go. We know that this fulfilled a passage or a a part of the text in Genesis 15, 13 to 14, where God tells Abraham, it's going to be your children's children's children that end up inheriting this, this land. But first, they're going to go down to a land that's not their own. And then when they come out, they're going to have many possessions. And so what we see then happen at the death of the firstborn is that the Egyptian uh, families just give their slaves all of these possessions. And so they're leaving with heaps and heaps of gold and silver. And what we'll find out later on is that gold and silver is going to be useful for building the tabernacle. It's first going to be useful for building a calf. But after that, it'll be useful for building a tabernacle uh, for God to come and dwell with his people. Now, all right, so uh, having reviewed that, it's now time for the children of Israel to get up and leave. And now I've got lots of maps, okay, Shannon? I've got lots of, lots of, lots of maps that you can look at. So um, he, he, here, are, there's, some, there's, a, there's a couple of things that are probably going to be bubble, bubble busters tonight. Um, most modern English translations um, identify the Red Sea as the place where the children of Israel crossed, and um, and and so it, every time, pretty much every time that you see it in your uh, Old Testament text in Exodus, it's going to say the Red Sea. Anytime you see it referred to later on in the Bible, it's going to say the Red Sea. Now that comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Red Sea in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The problem is that is not in the Hebrew text. 
The Hebrew text refers to it as the Yam Suf, or the Sea of Reeds, uh, not the Red Sea, but the Sea of Reeds, the Yam Suf. Um, and so it, it, because of the Septuagint translation that came up with Red Sea instead of Reed Sea, um, we, our English translations reflect that translation. And to be honest with you, I'm a bit skeptical of even that because the Hebrew text is clearly the one to follow in most cases. And I think a lot of our English translations have opted for Red Sea and continue to opt for Red Sea because if they don't say Red Sea, then a lot of people in the church will go, hey, why'd they remove the Red Sea? <laughs> What's the Reed Sea? You know, and, and cause a lot of confusion, I think, in the pews. But the, so they, they typically opt for the translation in the Septuagint as the Red Sea. But technically in Hebrew, it's the Yam Suf, which means the Sea of Reeds. That the, the, it also, I, I can almost guarantee you that the, what they crossed, the sea that they crossed, was not what we know today as the Red Sea, but somewhere else entirely. And I uh, hope to show you the reasons why uh, as we go. Now, what the biblical text does point out is that um, it, it tells us that the Israelites traveled from Ramses, so they left Ramses and they went to Sukkoth. And then they went from Succoth to Etham. They went from Etham to Pahirioth. And then they went, from, um, they went from there through the Yamsuf and into the desert of Shur. Okay, now I'm going to show you these on a map. But that's kind of the, the trace that we get. Let's take a look here at our, our passage list, Exodus 12, 37, starting there. It says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. And so they, they camped there at Sukkoth. And then we get uh, in Exodus 13, 20. So the Numbers passage says basically the same thing. We jump down to Exodus 13, 20. It says, And they moved from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And then we jump down to 14, Exodus 14, 1 to 2. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp at Pahai. Paha, Hiraoth, and between Migdal and the sea, and in front of Baal Zephon, uh, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. And so they, they turn and they go up there. And then this is right before Exodus 14 21, where Moses stretches out his hand and they prepare to cross. Now, as we look at a map of the area, so just wanted to, this is, I'm not expecting to see anything except just the lay of the land. Okay, so just for the first part, get, get kind of your bearings. We're looking at, here's the land of Canaan, right? Comes all the way down to um, the Sinai Peninsula, and then over here into Egypt. Here's the Nile, you can probably barely see. And we're going to be looking at this area right here. So the map that I'm about to show you is going to be a zoomed-in version of that, okay? Um, so here it is. All right, now... What we've got here on the map are three potential routes reflecting the, the actual biblical text and what's probably going on, at least the cities that they encamped at. So you have right here is Succoth. You see what land this is in. This is in the land of Goshen. Okay, so they're coming, they're, they're, he's basically telling them as the Passover is getting ready to hit 
to encamp on the eastern side of the land of Goshen. So everybody is kind of bundled together and ready to be on the eastern side of it, ready to to take off and, and leave, okay? So they're getting ready for it. So they encamp at Succoth, and then they go down to Etham, which is, we think, right here. Now, another thing that complicates some of this is that it's not always abundantly clear where all of these cities are. We have the names of them, and then it takes years for us to uncover some of these things. You have, I heard of one Egyptian scholar who is over there, an archaeologist, begins digging. He spends 35 years over there, goes on two digs a year for 35 years, so 70 total digs that last for six months at a time, five months at a time, something like that. And he uncovers only about 3% of one massive city. So, and that doesn't even account for the amount of things that there are yet to uncover. So, I mean, we, we just, it takes forever to kind of get some of these things uncovered. And so we don't know where all of the cities are, but it looks as though they're out here on the eastern side of, Go- of Goshen, and then they travel to Etham, and here um, they camp. And then it becomes a real big question, because we've got uh, Etham to Pahiri, and then Big Baal, Baalzephon, and then the Yom Suf, of course, doesn't, it doesn't have a name anymore. But one thing we do know is that the desert of Shur is right out here. So it seems like they're at least in this area when they prepare to cross uh, the Red Sea. Okay, does that make sense so far? Tracking with me? That's Goshen. That's one potential route on the northern side. I'll show you why in just a minute because there, there is a reason why they, why they think that might be it. It depends on, we, we think that this is where Succoth is now. Okay, so we're pretty sure that that's where it is. And we're pretty sure that this is where Etham is right now. But those cities could, could be different. It's all subject to, here's the thing with Egyptians. They were the first recyclers, okay? So they build a city, and then they decide, well, we're going to move that city. Because if the Nile dries up in one place and starts moving in a different direction or moving in a different area, what do they do with the city that was built on it? They tear it down and move it because they can't do without water. And so what they, in order to tear it down, they take it apart brick by brick and take the bricks and with slave labor haul them to the new area and start building again. And so what you get is a brick that's got the city name on it and then it picks up and moves. And so you go, what, is this the original location or is this other place over here the original? So it's really difficult sometimes to tell where they went and how they got there. Um, do I, it's, kinda, it's a lot like the Los Angeles Rams. It's exactly like the Los Angeles Rams. Um, <laughs> all right. So you've got all these cities that we're trying to kind of find the map on or figure out where they are. But we're, we're, we're nearly positive on Succoth. We're nearly positive on, on Etham. And then I'll show you why here in a couple seconds or some other, uh, or in a couple minutes, why some others. Um, Now, it's believed that the modern-day Suez Canal, which is probably what you picture in your mind when you picture them crossing the Red Sea, is the Suez Canal, uh, which is, I'll show you a map of in just a second, but which is on the the north and west side of the the Red Sea, um, that that modern-day Suez Canal would have been way too far south 
for them to actually journey down there in the number of days that, we're, that it appears that they've, they've gone. And so, um, so we're, we're probably talking about a pretty short timeline, so it seems like that would be too far. Plus, the cities where they go to camp are not anywhere near that. And so that would just seem to be unre- an unreasonable area for them to cross, um, uh, for them to get out into the desert after that. Um, now, the, uh, the remains of Sukkoth and Migdal are believed to be much further north. So I want to show you that right now. Uh, that would be Sukkoth and Migdal right there, if you don't have those. All right. So the map, there it goes, is here. So it, it appears that Migdal is uh, up near this area up here, and that Sukkoth would be in, uh, down here in this area. So we've got Sukkoth down here, and that Migdal is up here in this area where they're told to camp and be between uh, Migdal and the sea. Now, that happens to line up pretty nicely with the actual text because there's another uh, area that they're told, it says uh, right here, Baal Zephon. You see that on the, you can see it on the workshop. The Baal Zephon is a city that we've now identified and started to uncover, and the modern day name for it is Tel Defna. And, and that is right in this area. So since Migdal is most likely up here, and uh, Baal Zephon is here, it seems to line up pretty nicely with the way the biblical text is, uh, it, where the biblical text is telling them to be. So you can see the natural body of water that they would be most likely crossing that would be called the Sea of Reeds. Does that make sense so far? Tracking with me? Okay, what part? Yeah. So, no, no, no. So basically, what we're saying is, it looks like they go from Succoth to Etham, and then they go back up here. I'll show you this in just a second. It's actually, it seems to be in the text. But those lines don't go there. Uh, so, but it seems like they actually do turn north at some point and go back. And you'll actually, I think we actually see it in the text where God actually tells them to turn and go. But, yeah, you're right, but the lines, <laughs> the lines aren't there. I, I, yeah, I'm going to burn it in there with the laser, and then we'll, we'll be good. Um, say that one more time. The, the laser hurts to look at. Hey, hey, everybody griped about this one. Figure out which one you want to look at. Pick one, pick one. Bring sunglasses. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So this, um, there is a lake system out there toward the east of the land of Goshen. There's a lake system that's out there, just a, a, a series of lakes that are called the Bala Lakes. And it seems like these lakes make the most natural location for the Sea of Reeds and that actually coincides with the cities where they actually camped between it and the Reed Sea. 
And so there's, and, and the lake system that's there now, or that, that was there then, is not really there now. A lot of it has dried up. But what is interesting about that area is that it's filled with reeds. So it makes a lot of sense that you would have uh, reeds out there in this, in this area. The work that's going on there now, as far as the excavation work, it would put the body of water that would have sat there somewhere near 18 feet to probably a little bit more uh, deep if the reeds are any indication. So you look at an 18 feet foot deep sea, and that's clearly enough to drown a lot of people. Factor in also that, because uh, obviously Pharaoh's army is going to be drowned in this, in this sea, factor in also that they are stuck in the mud when the water hits them. Uh, so all of the water comes rushing in, uh, basically kills everybody that's there stuck in the reeds as they kind of want, make their way through. Does that make sense? Right? So you have a picture of what that looks like. That's a, that's a man standing there. You obviously can see that part. Uh, <laughs> that, that right there is a man uh, standing there in front of the reeds where this, uh, I guess you'd say excavation is kind of taking place. There's not much they can find with all the reeds kind of kind of sitting there, but that's essentially where the Bala Lakes would have stood in amongst those reeds, growing up through the water, essentially. So many parted the water and the reeds? I mean, how did they get through the reeds? Yeah, I mean, essentially, the, 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 water's, the water's parting. They're walking through on dry ground. Um, are they walking in between reeds and kind of pushing their way through? Maybe so. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, you want to roll over those? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, obviously they have, they have yeah, it's, it's not bamboo. But it also, you know, you could probably partly understand why Pharaoh's uh, army just kind of says, let's trudge through. We can make it. Um, you've got, you don't really know what's under you. You know, you don't really know what's there, but they seem to be walking over the reeds just fine. Let's plow through, and well, that's not happen. That's not what happens with their their wheels. They end up getting stuck, um, tangled up, and all kinds of other things. And then, obviously, the the water comes over. Now, you know, some of this, when it comes to archaeology, a lot of this is just we're we're making assumptions based on what we're actually finding. And some of the some of the cities, we're having to kind of say, well, we thought maybe it was down there at one point, but. Clearly, it's not. These cities are, are much further north. And are there bodies of water around here? Well, clearly, there were bodies of water around here. That seems to be evident. So this, this would seem to be the place where, the most natural place where they would, they would have walked through. Would it have been that thick that they walked through? Maybe not. You know, I have no idea. Is this problem, could be, this be one edge of it, or could this be part of it that gets its name? Maybe so. But... No. Right. No. They they have there's there's some good, decent ideas. Uh, there's there's some archaeology that you'll do that they'll do where they'll dig down really deep and they'll see watermarks where the Nile used to be, and they see even marshlands where uh, where there there used to be an incredible amount of marshlands that the that would have been there when the children of Israel were there that are now they're completely dry. And so if you've ever watched a, like a time-lapse video of a, of a river changing over years, 
um, it's incredible to watch how a river will be going one direction and then will end up clearly in another spot, I mean, practically, as it wears away soil and takes the path of least resistance. And so it's a, it's a close approximation, but if we know where these cities were and out here is clearly a body of water, it doesn't make sense then for them to, dra- for them to travel another, what ends up being about 50 miles further south to go to the Suez Canal when that's not even the name that's given to it in Scripture, you know? So there's no, there's no necessity to get down to the Suez Canal for them to cross down there because that's not even the name of it in Scripture. You know, it's probably something that's up here closer to the cities where they camped, you know? So I say all that without wanting to sound like a liberal, you know, not taking the text seriously. It, I just think that that's, that's most likely where it's, where it's happening. Um, does that help? Or, or is everybody on tracking with me on the same page? Okay. Um, so the Hebrews uh, take the southern exit out of Egypt. This is something we need to kind of understand about, um, about Egypt is that there are really two paths out of Egypt. Uh, there's a northern path and then there's a southern path. They take the southern exit out of Egypt. So during this time would have been the only two, only two ways out of Egypt. So you look at the northern route, close your eyes if you're, if you're going blind, but um, this northern route is labeled here the Great Trunk Road. We'll, uh, it, it'll be referred to as something else here in just a minute. But this would be the northern route out of the land of Goshen, out of Egypt. This would have been a trade route. We found a, a, a limestone pathway there now that was very clearly used by the Egyptians. It's hard to drive chariots in the sand, and so they, they paved a lot of things with limestone out there. And so um, there's very clearly a limestone path. This goes all the way up into the land of Canaan with check stops along the way. So, and I mean, you can, I don't know if you can walk on it now if it's accessible, but you can see it today, that it's, it's still there. There's another path down here on the south, which is called the way to Shur, and it is also the other way out of Egypt. It seems to be pretty clear, even in the text, that they take this southern route to get out to the desert in Shur. And um, so if we look, let me see where I'm at on my... On my go ahead. Hold on, hold on. I'm piecing it together. So the northern route would have been the way straight into Canaan if they had gone. But it's clear in the text that they go this way. But then we've got some cities up here that they camp at. So what happens is the question. I think that's where you're going, right? Okay, so they clearly take this route, but then they, we think they end up up here. How? Okay, well, let's take a look. Okay, so... First, we get uh, Exodus 13, 7 to 8. Somebody read that out loud. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. That is not the verse that I meant to put down there. <laughs> uh, look at, does anybody have their Bible open? Yeah. Look at 12. Look at 12, 7, and 8. See if that's the verse I meant to put down there. Nope. I don't even have my, I don't have my Bible with me. Ah! <laughs> Go ahead, read it, read it. 
Okay. Read verse 7. Took 600 chosen chariots and all the others of Egypt with officers. So I don't have that verse. I don't have the verse down there. I apologize. I don't know why. I don't know what I was thinking. He tells them that he's that he's not going to take the northern route. He doesn't want them to take the northern route because that's the way of the Philistines. And if they get up there, then he's afraid that they're going to see battle and that they're going to want to turn around and go back. Some of you may. What is it? Verse 17. Read it. 13, 17. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. But God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Okay. So in 13.17, not 13.7, 13.17, he tells them, I don't want you to take the northern route, even though that's quicker, even though that will get you to the land of Canaan faster. I want you to take the southern route because this route up here is the way of the Philistines. The Philistines were a seafaring people, but they were warriors. They were fighters. And we already talked about a few weeks ago how there is some ancestor of the Philistines that's in this area already. We know that for sure. And so he tells them, look, if I take you on the northern route, you're going to come in contact with the Philistines. And as you, if you look at the, at the whole land of Canaan, if you zoom out, that that area where that road goes up is right along the Mediterranean Sea, which is exactly where the Gaza Strip is, which is exactly where the the city of Gaza and all of the Ashkelon, Ashdod, all of those cities of the Philistines are, are right there. And so that route going up through there, leading the children of Israel up through the southern border of the land of Israel is going to run them right through the Philistines. And the worry is they're going to want to turn around and go back. So he doesn't take them on the northern route. So then what happens? All right, let's keep going. Um, It's probable that the children of Israel turn northward at God's direction and camp on the northern edge of the sea. So why don't somebody read Exodus 14 too? I hope it's the right one this time. Here we go. Yeah. So there's a question mark down here by Pahirioth. There's a question mark up here by Pahirioth because we're not sure where it is. All right. But what it seems like happens, they go to Succoth to Etham, and then God tells them, now turn back and now connect up to the northern route. So what happens, it seems like, is they, they stop here at Etham, they camp here at Etham, and then they move up uh, just east of Baal Zephon and, um, and camp here between Migdal, which would have been somewhere in this area, and the Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds. So this is where the connection is. Now, this map doesn't show it, but this would have been uh, walking straight up this canal, basically, and connecting to the northern side of this sea. That's essentially what it seems like is happening in the text. Um, Like I said, it's it's difficult sometimes to piece together the cities, but that that seems to be the most logical thing, is he's getting them out of the land of Goshen, 
quickly because the Egyptians are, well, they're not happy, and they're, they're being driven out. They camp on the eastern side. They then move closer to the sea as they, as they go and camp, and then they're told, now let's go north. They're going to cross the sea over here, and then they're going to go out into the desert of Shur down here. Does that make sense? Following with me? Yeah? What did you say? Sure. <laughs> A lot of city names, but it seems like this is the path that they're going. Um, so then, we have a very curious thing that happens here. God decides, I'm not done with Pharaoh. So he decides to harden Pharaoh's heart. And he pursued, and so Pharaoh pursued the Israelites to bring them back. Somebody read Exodus 14, 4 to 9. Yep, sure did. Uh, yeah, so Pharaoh, God decides, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you here right by the sea, and then I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart again so that he comes after you. I want him to pursue you, uh, which seems like a, a very strange task. But then we get another interesting glimpse into what God is doing. Moses is told, uh, Mo, God tells Moses what to do, and Moses stretches out his hand. He stretched out his hand, and the Lord caused the wind to blow Blows the water back, the water separates, the ground dries, and the children of Israel are able to walk across on dry land. When Moses gets to the other side, what does Moses do? Do you remember? What happens? Yeah. God, uh, Moses stretches out his hand again. We, we, we often tell the story as God parted the waters, and then Moses got to the other side, and then God closed the waters back on, on Pharaoh. But that leaves out a really important detail. Moses stretched out his hand across the, the sea, and then he got to the other side, and Moses stretched out his hand again. Why would God do that? You ever wonder that? God can part the waters. He did it. Who's the one providing the power here? God is. So why is it that he needs Moses to stretch out his hand across the river? He doesn't. Or across the, the sea? He doesn't at all. Well, then they get to the other side. Why doesn't God just go, now watch this, boom, and just stop the wind and let the water just come rushing back together and just kill all of Pharaoh's men right there in the water? Why doesn't he just do that? He doesn't. He wants Moses to stretch his hand again over the water, bring the water back together. Well, believe it or not, the text actually tells us. Um, Somebody look at Exodus 14, uh, 30 to 31. Chariots and upon 
And uh, good grief. I'm going to go back through and proofread these little things. Um, no, then verse down here at the very end, verse 31. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. And who else? His servant Moses. What is God doing here? Showing that Moses is in charge, in control. Yeah. Has his God's power. God is elevating Moses, him, not only himself, but also Moses in the sight of the people. And the only way he does that is by allowing Moses to direct God's power. Isn't that crazy? Just think about that for a second. God doesn't need Moses at all. God uses Moses. But not only does he not need Moses, he, God's giving them a look at himself. He's just taking the Egyptians through 10 plagues so that he can beat out idolatry out of their hearts and exemplify exactly who he is in their sight so that they will want to worship him. But then in the strangest turn of events, he gives his power essentially to be channeled through Moses and through Aaron even in the plagues, but through Moses so that Moses is elevated in the eyes of the people. Not only will he do that, but later when the people grumble against Moses, he'll punish the people. Because grumbling against God's person is grumbling against God himself. And so he'll make quail come out their nose. Vomit. It's it's amazing how God takes a sinner like Moses and uses him, but not only uses him, elevates him in the sight of the people. We're going to see Moses come to a point in Exodus 32 and following where he becomes an intercessor for the people of Israel and actually stands in between God and the people of Israel, where he, in some sense is willing to take God's wrath for the people. Remember this scene where God says, get out of my way, I'm going to destroy all of them, and I'll start over with you. And Moses, what does he do? He stands between God and the people, and he says, don't do that. Remember your covenant. Remember who you are. Strike me, in other words. Moses is becoming that intercessor for his people. He's, going, he's standing in the gap for his people. But here, God is elevating him in the sight of the people to be this sort of type of a Christ to come. So when we say Jesus is the new and better Moses, not only does Jesus stand in between God and his people, he actually does take the full force of his wrath for his people. Um, 
where I'm at. Now, there's a considerable amount of uh, debate as to whether or not Pharaoh was, Pharaoh himself actually went into the water or if he sent his military in. The text can be read in either, either way uh, if you look closely at it. Um, so there's question as to whether he was actually drowned in the Sea of Reeds. And I'll show you why there's uh, arguments to be made on both sides. Now, in favor of Pharaoh actually going into the sea and Pharaoh himself, not his armies, I'm not talking about them, obviously they drowned, but I'm, I'm talking about Pharaoh himself, the actual guy. Uh, in favor of Pharaoh drowning in the depths of the sea are phrasings in Scripture like Psalm 136, uh, 15. But overth- he overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. So we have the psalmist saying he overthrew Pharaoh and his host and the armies in the Red Sea. But then uh, other aspects of the account, like Moses' song after the end, seems like Pharaoh himself is sending his armies and generals into the sea. Look at Exodus 14, 28 in your packet. He says, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, that followed the children of Israel into the sea, and not one of them remained. And then it says in 14, uh, 15, 4 and 5, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. So it seems as though Moses is saying his armies and his generals are going into the sea. Now the reason why this is a, this is a, a point of contention and why we maybe should at least know about this is because... In addition to to Pharaoh suddenly dying, obviously, as he goes into the Red Sea, if that's the case, it would obviously further complicate the timeline. Because the timeline that we've set out, which I think is pretty, should be at least pretty close, does not have this Pharaoh dying suddenly in about the year where Moses would have crossed the Red Sea. He lives on into 1425. You can see I've included the list there. Um, where Amenhotep II lives till 1425 and Tutmos IV uh, takes the throne in 1425 and then, and then rules until um, 1417. And so it seems like he's not, that, that wouldn't, um, that obviously would complicate the timeline. We'd have other considerations uh, to look at there. So it's probably, what I think is probably going on is that Pharaoh is actually sending his army uh, he's, he's out there with them, but he's sending his army and his officers and everybody into the water while he sits back and essentially observes them sort of capture the, the children of Israel. That's true because that's what the movie shows. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He, that's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, there has to be that, you know. Yeah. To say that Pharaoh was overthrown, I mean, you say that the whole land lost at Waterloo and that Xerxes lost at Thermopylae, but neither one of them died there. Right, yeah. Um, that, that's what I think is probably going on in the psalm, is that he's saying that the, the army, the host of Pharaoh, is sort of the stand-in for Pharaoh and his host. You know, is really, it's all the armies of Pharaoh that went in. Pharaoh lost the battle there, even though he was a distance away. What seems to be clear in the text is that Pharaoh goes... Uh, that, that seems to be stated pretty explicitly. 
I think you could even explain that as to say when it says Pharaoh goes, it means he sent his army either way. But it seems like Pharaoh actually does get on a chariot and he goes out there with him. But the statements of, of going into the water, it doesn't make that about Pharaoh going into the water, but his ar- it seems like his army going to the water, or at least it leaves it sort of ambiguous as to whether he goes or not. And so I think it's probably most logical that he sends his, his military in after him and the waters come back over him and kill them all. And then Pharaoh turns tails and run, basically. Yeah. Questions about that? Okay. Um, the reason that this, this whole story, we've talked about this a couple of times, but the whole story of the Exodus, it serves as a type. Both the slavery in Egypt, the killing of the lamb, the spearing of the, door, the blood on the doorpost, the, the actual drowning of Pharaoh's army in the water, them going down to Sinai, this whole story is a type. And there are sometimes very explicit connections that are made back to this story in the New Testament, where the New Testament writers, it seems, are picking up on the fact that this event in Israel's history, which was forever to be memorialized, they were supposed to remember this through the Passover forever. They were always to practice this. It seems like the New Testament authors are looking back at this story and going, you know what? This story It was supposed to be remembered not just because it was a tremendous event in Israel's history, but because it was a type of the kind of exodus Christ is leading even now. And so we get a picture of this, uh, just to, I know because if if I don't give you the blanks, your heads are going to bust. This type of victory is something that all of God's people are going to experience at the end of salvation history. So look at what John says in Revelation 15, 1-4. So you remember that after the children of Israel get out of the, of the, off the dry ground and the water comes back over Pharaoh's army and, and destroys them all, Moses and the people are celebrating on, on this side of the sea. And in Exodus 15, 1-18 is where Moses basically composes a song for all that God has done. And, it's, and you even see in your ESV, it's nicely labeled as the Song of Moses. Well, if you look at, uh, and this always was known as the Song of Moses, is the song that he composes in Exodus 15, 1 to 18. But if you look in Revelation 15, 1 to 4, this is what John says. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, And the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So John basically updates the song of Moses 
to be not only not now just about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, but about all of God's children coming out of a time of great suffering at the end of human history, of salvation history. When God's final act has been revealed, act of mercy has been revealed, where he destroys this time not Pharaoh, but who? The beast. Where are they thrown? Into the lake of fire. What's interesting about this passage, too, is it says that they were standing, it says, uh, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Remember the children of Israel are standing there, and what's, what's with them? While they're there at the sea, you remember? Stands in between them and Pharaoh. Pillar of fire, right? So here is the sea of, of glass. How, what, is, what, what is that? That's significant, the sea of glass. It's not now tumultuous. It's not a roaring sea. It's not a wa- There's no waves on the sea. This sea is completely calm. There's no, no tumult. Mingled with fire. And those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing, it says they're beside the sea because that's the only thing that makes sense. But the word is actually standing on the sea. Standing on the sea. How calm is the sea? Remember, remember the sea is, is, a, is an image of terror. No one wants to go in the sea. The beast is in the sea. The uh, Leviathan is in the sea. No one wants to go on the sea. But here, you've got Christ, uh, God, conquering the beast, conquering all forms of evil, so much so that he's thrown them away, and now the sea is completely calm, is like glass, and the saints are standing on the sea. Like their Savior did. The image of the Exodus carries through the New Testament because it's a picture, it's a microcosm of what God will do in the end. The beast is always a representative of government. That's what beast is, government, power, authority. And inevitably, power is corrupt. So Pharaoh is a beast. Babylon is a beast. America is a beast. Germany, Italy, Russia, beasts. And in the end, the beast is conquered. And what replaces it? God's government. Where he will reign forever. And the sea will be completely calm. So calm you don't have to fear. They're all thrown away. All evil is eradicated. So just like the beast was disappeared in front of Moses and the children of Israel, so the beast will disappear before God's children. Questions, comments? Head swimming with names of cities and (laughs) maps and timelines. (laughs) There was. Yeah. So the, the idea would be, if we go with an early date of the Exodus, that what's happened is when that town was named Ramses, that probably somebody went in and said, Ramses. 
updated the title, basically the text, and that was what was preserved. That's the idea. Some, so something along those lines. In the, I, I don't remember the exact year, but it's somewhere in the 1200s. Okay. Yeah. Incidentally, another reason why we are pretty certain the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were written when we think they were written, which would be somewhere in the time of Moses, um, with probably some updates later on by some other people, um, is because the city of Ramses, at about 1100 or so, was destroyed and moved and became a totally different place with a different name. And so if it was written, if the books were written much later, which is what a lot of liberal scholarship wants to do, oh, these books were written when the children of Israel were exiled, right? These were, that's when all this were written, you know, kind of dilutes the story a little bit. But um, if that were the case, then there's no Wikipedia back then. They would have had to, in 600, in exile, know that there was a city 600 years ago called Ramses and where it was. It seems implausible when it would have been gone for 500 years. So it seems to give credence to the fact that it was written somewhere in, that, in the neighborhood of the timeline time we're talking about. Yeah. Other questions? Any other? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, so grateful that um, you are victorious that there is no question about your victory, even though at times we feel as though there is, it's up for debate. When circumstances around us get really tumultuous and when we begin to fear and lose trust and we lose sight of who you are and we lose sight of the fact that you have already won and that you've conquered and that the Old Testament and the New Testament are both a picture of your faithfulness, both to your own name and your own holiness and to your people. And so we pray for courage and clear eyes to in the midst of difficulty and when all of the things of life surround us, to continue to trust you, knowing that you have delivered time and time again your people from despair and that you will do it yet again. Lord, we long for that day when everything is made right, when we observe the injustices in the world like what happens in Sri Lanka or all around the world. Every day, injustices that take place. We desperately want things to be made right. And we know that the governments that we have and that we serve in, maybe, or that we, that are, they're not perfect. And we practice injustice all the time. But we long for the day when you make everything right. We see here in Exodus that you have done it before. We know in Revelation you will do it again. And we pray that it comes quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.